Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. So happy that you've joined us this weekend. We are at the end of our sermon series, Messages from Matthew. And so if you've been with us over the last six or seven weeks, you've seen that we have systematically kind of walked through the very end chapters of Matthew. And predominantly what we were looking at were parables from Jesus taught in the temple on Tuesday of Holy Week. And so Jesus had just given us uh, ample amounts of stories. And, and in, in some sense, he was trying to change the heart's of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders that were in that temple from unbelief to belief. And so um, that's what we've been walking through. So today is going to be a transition of sorts. It will be Matthew transitioning out of that entire section of Jesus teaching on Holy Week into the events that take place during Holy Week, uh, and most importantly, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. There's a gift that was given in our text. And maybe this is a good time of the year where we start thinking about that, or maybe not good, but maybe we, are, um, we have to start thinking about it this time of the year because the holiday buying season has already started to kind of crank up. I knew it was coming when I got an Amazon uh, magazine with all the toys that you could buy from Amazon.com. I kind of love the old school method of it because I flipped through that thing. Uh, but the gift buying has already started to intensify. In fact, some of you may have already bought gifts for loved ones. Maybe you're thinking way in advance. Maybe you want to avoid crowds because of COVID. Uh, but my guess is, is that that gift buying has already started to kind of creep in into our lives. And so when you're thinking about what gifts you're going to buy for your loved ones, I think there's lots that go into it, right? Uh, you consider who you're buying for. You consider the, the budget that you have. You consider the occasion. Uh, how close are they to you? And none of us want to say it, but how, how maybe near and dear they are to you in your hearts. And so we do a lot of gift buying, but we kind of have um, parameters that we put in place for where and why and how we buy those gifts. Now, we do that, and that's not such a strange thing to do. In fact, if you look into our world, there's a lot of gift buying that goes through certain parameters. Have you ever heard of something called a protocol gift? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, a protocol gift is, is something that's a little more official. In fact, it, and it's incredibly common in the world of diplomacy. So now you know what protocol is. It's something that you do, right? That there's kind of steps to put this in place. But in the world of diplomacy, there are protocol gifts. And protocol gifts are meant to do something very specific. So um, these are gifts that are given by prime ministers and presidents, secretaries of state, uh, dictators, leaders of country, and almost universally in our world, leaders will give gifts to other leaders, 
But there's a very specific intent from a protocol gift. The intent of a protocol gift is to engender some kind of goodwill in the person or the country that you're giving it to. And they say that the best protocol gift actually will create a sense of debt in the person that you're giving it to. So now you can understand how that would work out with nations, right? So you give a protocol gift to one of your, your um, companions on the other side or, or, or in another nation, and your goal really is for them to feel an affinity towards you and to, on some level, feel as though they're in your debt. And the hopes are is that you're going to be able to then push through that trade deal, that there will be better relations, and that good things will kind of flow back to your home country. So that's what a protocol gift is is meant to do. And some of them are more effective than others. And there's kind of some legendary examples of protocol gifts that have been given between countries that were intended to create kind of a debt imbalance. Um, One of the most interesting ones I heard of was from our former Secretary of State John Kerry uh, to his uh, um, the Russian diplomat that was kind of his same level in Russia. But he came and he gave him two Idaho potatoes. Yeah, it doesn't seem super awesome, right? Unless you really love potatoes or you're from Idaho. So I'm sorry I'm offending those from Idaho. But yeah, two Idaho potatoes was his protocol gift to his Russian compatriot. Uh, Hillary Clinton, it was said, gave uh, to Russia a, a red button. And it was meant to, to say reset, and so they, they transcribed it, they translated it, uh, and it was meant to be kind of a, uh, a lighthearted way to say, let's have a reset of our relations, let's, let's start over with a clean slate. And so this red button was supposed to mean reset, but they translated it wrong, and actually the Russian translation meant overcharged, so not an awesome protocol gift. Uh, protocol gifts through the ages have been somehow or for some reason animals have always been a really high and popular protocol gift between nations so um it was said that uh that um yeah john quincy adams received an alligator as a protocol gift from a neighboring nation uh, and he actually kept it in the east room of the white house for a while which i can't understand why he would do that, but uh, George Bush received a Komodo dragon and wisely did not keep it in the in the East Room, but he donated it to a, a local zoo. China is probably the most famous for this, for these protocol gift of animals. They oftentimes will loan out pandas from their country to, to other countries in, in order to engender kind of goodwill with them, and so the panda will get to stay at that other country's zoo for a while. Um, there is a story uh, of Francois Hollande from France France, uh, he received a, a camel as a gift. So this was a protocol gift. And then he entrusted it to a family in Timbuktu. Uh, they were supposed to kind of be caretakers of the camel and take care of it. Uh, but something was lost in translation. So the family actually cooked the camel into a wonderful savory stew. Right. So sometimes these protocol gifts are, are actual animals that go back and forth, but many times um, they're meant to wow and they're meant to impress. And so a lot of times maybe um, it's not a potato, but they're meant to have real worth. And so some of these gifts have had that. Actually, uh, George W. Bush received probably one of the most expensive protocol gifts that any of our presidents have ever received. It was a painting of a Native American buffalo scene, and it was estimated to be worth about a million dollars. So John Kerry's wife, Teresa Heinz Kerry, received uh, an emerald and diamond necklace that was estimated to be worth about $750,000. And Michelle Obama received at least a couple necklaces made of jewels that were 
estimated to be over over a half million. So these gifts are no small thing that that come across. And the intent of a protocol gift is to engender debt on the other side. But there's not a lot of heart behind those gifts, to be honest. They're protocol, right? It's a quid pro quo. You're giving something, you fully are expecting something in return. Now, to set your mind at ease just a little bit, did you know that our president and secretary of state, they have a protocol gift budget of only $2,000? So secretary of state is actually only $1,000. So now you can understand why John Kerry just gave potatoes. So if, if you think that our, our uh, elected officials are running rampant with this, they absolutely are not. Uh, second of all, we actually have a protocol gift agency. So our politicians are not allowed to keep any of those gifts they get. Actually, every single one comes in, they get to see it for about a moment, and then it gets whisked off to the protocol gift agency where they catalog it and they put it in a museum or they donate it. So, um, so our politicians are not benefiting from these protocol gifts. But the intent remains the same, to put someone in your debt, but not a lot of heart behind it. Now, for Christmas, are your gifts going to be protocol gifts? I'm guessing not. Here's a tip. I hope they're not. If you're giving a gift to your wife or to your kids, it's not a protocol gift. It comes from a completely different place. It comes from a place of love. And so that's what we want to look at in our text here today. We want to compare gift giving because gifts may look similar, but they come from vastly different places. And we want to consider um, what Matthew brings to us in his text. We want to talk about the difference between protocol and praise. And the disciples were very much on the protocol side, but the woman in our text very much on the side of praise. And so our theme is going to simply be the gift. And we want to look at three different areas of that gift. We kind of want to break it down because I think we need to set our hearts right as believers if we want to to approach our world, our Christian living, and our Lord correctly. We've got to kind of understand exactly what that gift is. So we're going to look at three parts. Uh, The gift is given. So who is giving us that gift? The second part is the reception of that gift. So um, how do we receive the gift that we've been given? And the last one is what does that gift create in us and in our Christian living? So the given gift, the reception of that gift, and ultimately what does it create in our in our lives? So that's what we're going to look at here today. Uh, now our text, as I mentioned, we're continuing to walk through that message of Matthew. And this is really the turning point from all of Jesus' parables uh, and all of the teaching that he had been giving, because now Matthew uh, um, kind of abruptly throws us into the cold water and goes from Jesus teaching on that Holy Tuesday and just plainly says exactly what is about to happen on Holy Week to Jesus. So let's jump into our text. You're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, a couple things that are going on in this text 
Number one, Matthew is transitioning us from the teaching Jesus was doing on Tuesday and kind of abruptly giving us the reminder that Jesus was about to be killed. And Jesus says that, right? He says, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, um, it's right direct to the point. It's literally going to happen in two days. But this isn't the first time that Jesus has said that. Multiple times throughout the Gospels, Jesus has told his disciples, has told his followers, has told the leaders in Jerusalem, this is what must happen. I will be crucified. I will rise again. And so Jesus has said this time after time. And what's really fascinating about the beginning of this section is there's a hint of irony from Matthew as he's sharing this with us. Because Jesus has said time after time, I will be killed and crucified, and I will rise again. He said exactly how it was going to happen. In fact, he says now that in two days, this is exactly what's going to happen. But Matthew shares the wish and the intent of the chief priests and the elders. They say, we don't want to kill him during the Passover. We don't want people to riot. It's too dangerous. Let's hold off. Well, do you know what happened? Yeah, Jesus was killed crucified and rose again exactly how he had prophesied it would happen. And so what's interesting is there is a hint of irony. Matthew is basically saying these chief priests, these men who thought that they were in charge, were not. Christ was right up to the very end of laying down his life for the sins of all mankind. And so he comes and he just plainly says, I'm going to be killed. That's important, and maybe sometimes we think that that's a little bit basic. But, brothers and sisters, there's nothing basic about that. In fact, Jesus' death and resurrection is the engine that makes the Christian life go. Matthew shares it here because on some level, he and his fellow disciples still hadn't fully grasped the depth of Jesus' grace and his sacrifice for them. And yet we have to. Because that's the foundation. That's what what makes the Christian life move. I don't know if any of you uh, enjoy cruise taking cruise lines. Um, If you know me a little bit by now, my motion sickness is kind of legendary. Uh, But cruise lines are are incredible amounts of fun, tons of stuff to do, tons of activity. Above board, there's all kinds of stuff going on, nearly constant. You can eat anything, you can do activities, you can go down a slide, you can bungee jump, like all this stuff. Like they're just jam-packed with stuff to do. That's the the, uh, allure of a cruise line. For me, the only things that I'm allowed to do are take triple doses of Dramamine and feel nauseated most of the time. But for most normal human beings, cruise ships have tons of stuff that you can do. But none of that is possible without what happens down below. If the screws stop turning, if those engines stop moving, everything that's above is nothing. And maybe that's a good way to think of uh, our Christian living. If we as believers, if we as Christians don't base who we are, what we do, and our spiritual life on Jesus' death and resurrection, in short order, our Christian living will grind to a halt. And in fact, all of those things that are part of Christian living are important and beautiful and an expression of thankfulness to our God above. But if our hearts aren't set on Christ... If the engine and the, the, the power to move our Christian living isn't Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection, then none of the rest of, the, of anything else matters. 
And that's really what Matthew is saying to us um, and to himself and preaching that into his own heart, that if we don't focus and remember that Jesus' death and resurrection is where our spiritual living and Christian living comes from, we'll be off track right from the start. And so that gift is given by Jesus Christ. It is not merited. It is not worked for. This is not a quid pro quo. We do not give things to our God above in order to get things in return. That gift is pure and simple, no strings attached, Jesus' grace for us. Matthew says it plainly. In two days, Jesus would sacrifice himself on the cross. He would rise again so that our sins would be washed clean. And so that gift, it's given by Christ to you. And that's the heart, beating heart and soul of Christianity and of us as followers of Jesus Christ. So that gift is given by Jesus. But how do we receive that? Well, Jesus goes on. Verses 6 through 9. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why waste this, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And so Matthew, right on the heels of resetting us, saying this is what it's all about, is Jesus' death and resurrection, then shares this story of a woman that pours perfume on Jesus' head. Now, what's really fascinating about how Matthew shares this particular story, um, I think, is the timing of it a little bit. So as you know, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And so um, this text and this account is actually shared in a couple other gospel accounts as well. So the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark. And so the picture of what's happening here is filled out a little bit by those other gospel writers, specifically the Gospel of John. He tells us a little greater detail of what was happening here. And in fact, even gives us a name for the woman who was anointing Jesus you maybe recognize her name. It was Mary. Her, her sister was Martha. In John's account, she anoints his feet. Um, in Matthew, she does his head. But the point is, is that she was anointing Jesus' feet and his head and that she was giving a, a gracious gift to Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And it was no small thing. This perfume was expensive. In fact, most scholars will estimate that this perfume was maybe worth as much as a year's worth of salary. It's a pretty incredible gift, isn't it? But look at the disciples' reaction. They were indignant. They were upset. So how could this woman be doing this? What a waste of money that she's doing. But the disciples being indignant, being upset with this gift, that this woman was giving revealed exactly where their hearts were. And their hearts were far more protocol than praise in this moment. And what's really remarkable here is that Matthew uh, shares this story at the point of our, uh, in his gospel, where he does, almost to make a point. So John says that this gospel took place uh, the Friday before, so about a week before, Matthew actually doesn't date it. He just puts it in right after Jesus has talked about all this, these parables. 
And there's maybe two reasons for that. Number one, these are eyewitness accounts. So maybe Matthew forgot exactly when this anointing happened. But I think a a far more probable um, reason for that is that Matthew's trying to make a point. He is making a confession. Because who are these disciples? Well, one of them is Matthew, who's writing this. Guess who was indignant and upset with this woman? Matthew, who's writing this. So this is, on some level, um, in humility, Matthew is coming to us and to his readers and to his Savior and pouring out his heart and saying, I was off base. I did not understand the difference between protocol and praise. I did not fully understand the depth of the statement that Jesus had made, that he needed to die and rise again. And so on some level, Matthew's putting it here almost to condemn himself or as a, a way to confess his own sinfulness and his own lack of understanding as to exactly why Jesus had come during that Holy Week. Matthew is saying to you and I, I didn't fully get it, but this woman did. In fact, that's where the motivation came for the gift that she gave to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus redirects his disciples and says, her gift came from a heart of love, not from protocol, not from a desire to get something from me, but from a a complete understanding of who I was. Mary got down on her knees, anointed Jesus' feet and his head, not because she wanted to earn her Savior's love and forgiveness, but because she knew of how much he already loved her. In humility, she offered herself, her entire life, all that she had to her Savior, because she knew without a shadow of a doubt that's exactly what Jesus had come to earth to do, and in short order, that's exactly what he would do. It's a remarkable testimony from Matthew and from Mary because it admits that Matthew and his fellow disciples didn't fully understand what was happening. But I think we're right there with them, aren't they? Aren't we? These were still believers. They just didn't fully understand. These were still believers. They were just a little off track. And I think we can understand how easily that happens for us as well. How easily we can turn our faith and Christianity into a quid pro quo, way more protocol than praise. I go to church, I watch faithfully on a video screen or listen to it on a podcast, right? Uh, I try to treat people right. I go to all the right meetings. I try to say the right things. I do my best to forgive and ask for forgiveness. Like I do all these things. And so, God, you kind of owe me. Like I've been towing the line. So good things should come my way. And when the normal suffering and pain of this world infiltrates into our lives, what's sometimes our reaction? Well, we shake our fist at our God. How dare you do that to me? How dare you let this come into my life? I ought to be treated in a different way because of all of the gifts that I've given you, because all the ways that I've served you. You ought to do this for me. I have put you, God, in my debt. You want to know what that's called? That's a protocol gift. It's not how our God works. It's not how He's ever worked. It's not how He will ever work. God's gift to us was unmerited. Not because we're such good people or done so many things, 
but it was pure grace. Jesus was going to lay down his life on the cross, not only for Mary, but also for his disciples, the Pharisees and the elders and the teachers of the law that were actively scheming to put him to death and for the sins of the whole world. And he did that. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. He did that because of grace not because of what something that we've earned or because we've given him certain protocol gifts and he's in our debt. That's what Matthew's confessing to. That's what he is urging us as believers to understand. And so that gift takes a degree of humility from us as believers. Mary had it as she opened up her heart, motivated by love for Jesus. Matthew, after this moment, I think, was humbled. And we need that as well. But the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus then lifts us up and reminds us, reminds you how loved you are. That gift creates something in the hearts and ultimately then the lives of believers. So let's go on to our final section, verses 10 through 13. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And has that come true? Uh, Yeah, right now. 2,000 years later, we get to hear the story of Mary and her incredible gift to her God above because that's what receiving that gift of grace does in the lives of believers. It creates praise. And to be honest, it's got nothing to do with the gift that Mary gave to Jesus. The size of it, big, small, whatever it is, it's got nothing to do with the gift. It's got everything to do with a heart that loves her Lord and Savior and that sought ways to give Him thanks and give Him praise. Because knowing that gift of Christ and the salvation we have creates in us hearts and lives of generosity. In fact, it characterizes the life of a Christian, living lives of generosity. You may not be breaking open a a vial of perfume and putting it on Jesus' feet and his head, but every day our lives are acts of praise to our God above. Not gifts given in protocol, but gifts given in praise out of love, motivated by love for him. In how you treat those around you, the words you choose to use, the words you choose to refrain from using, your willingness to forgive and ask for forgiveness. All of those things in a Christian life form a life of praise and thanks to our God above for knowing the gift that we have received. And that's really the point of this text, isn't it? The gift you can give to your God above, motivated by thankfulness, is living a life of devotion and praise to Jesus Christ. It's the very same thing Mary was doing. All she was saying was, Lord, you are my Savior, and to you I give you my all. Brothers and sisters, you know that gift. It's worked in your heart. And let us do the same. Let's throw our lives at the foot of the cross. Let's give our lives in devotion to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in how we act, in who we interact with, in how we treat those around us, and most importantly, in sharing the good news of the free gift of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't know what your Christmas is looking like. I don't know what gifts you have on your list. Um, My guess is that maybe two potatoes from Idaho are not super high on that list. But here's the good news as we go into that hectic Christmas season. The gift you have in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. It does not change. It was not earned. That gift, that salvation, that forgiveness is the engine that drives our Christian living. May the Lord be with you this Christmas season. Let us never forget the gift we have of Christ and let us never stop sharing that gift with those who desperately need it. Amen. Thank you.